Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to the Islamic History Podcast. I'm your host, Mutaki Ismail, and this is a bonus episode filling in the space between season seven and season eight. This episode is brought to you by Islamic History Exclusive. This is our premium podcast. We have four seasons so far discussing the struggle between Ibn Zubair and the Umayyads, the life of Salahuddin, and currently two seasons of the Umayyad Caliphate. If you need to hear more Islamic history, I strongly encourage you to consider joining Islamic History Exclusive. To join, open up your Apple Podcast or Spotify app and search for Islamic History Exclusive. You can also join by visiting patreon.com slash Islamic History or by going to my own personal website, islamichistoryexclusive.com. This episode is also brought to you by the Prophet Muhammad Podcast. This is a free podcast chronicling the life of Allah's last messenger, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, and it is available on all platforms. All right, so today, after all of that house cleaning is done, today I have something special for you, inshallah. This is a collaboration between me and my brother from another mother, my brother in Islam, Majid Hussein of the Islamic Vibes podcast. In this episode, we'll be discussing Islam, slavery, and Africa. Essentially, we are going to try to explain to the audience, which is you, we're going to try to explain Muslims' role in the African slave trade. I believe this is a very important topic. Both me and Brother Majid have noticed that Several Western apologists often use Islam as a scapegoat for slavery. There's a lot of what I call whataboutism. And I, haven't, I didn't coin that phrase, someone else did, but that's what they do. So when people try to point out the, what the West has done in the past regarding the transatlantic slave trade and the treatment of people of African descent in the Americas and across the world, they often point to the trans-Sahara slave trade that Muslims and Muslims in general and Arabs in particular were involved in. And so with this collaboration between me and Brother Majid, we wanted to try to set the record straight. We're not going to excuse or minimize the role that Muslims played in the African slave trade. We're not going to do that. But we want to at least give you a broader picture and not just have you accept some of the outright lies that some of these folks say. I kid you not, I heard someone just a few weeks ago, yeah, just a couple of weeks ago, after Brother Magic and I had already done this podcast, this episode, I heard someone from the UK stating how Arabs invented the slave trade, which is ridiculous. Slavery and the slave trade existed long before the Arabs came to prominence, really after the time of Prophet Muhammad wasallam, There was slave trade, African slave trade, slave trade period, and slavery across much, much of the world way before then. And he said this on a modern podcast, and his guests who were there listening to him just agreed with him. It's ridiculous. So I want to hopefully, inshallah, give you some more context to the slave trade in Islam, and not the entire slave trade, really the uh, African slave trade, particularly in West Africa and its connection to the, uh, the Americas. That is the United States, North America in general, South America as well, and the Caribbean. Now, this original conversation between me and Brother Majid, 
It took about, it was very long. It was like an hour and 48 minutes long. So I broke it up on my podcast into three different parts. So this first one, this first part will be about 30 minutes. The next one will be a little bit longer. Then the final one will be roughly 40 minutes or so. And we'll spread these out over the next two weeks. So you get one today, and then over the next two weeks, you get the next two episodes, inshallah. But if you don't want to wait that long, if you want to hear the entire episode, go to Brother Majid's podcast, the Islamic Vibes podcast. He has the entire episode, all hour, one hour, 48 minutes of it. He has it all there available, and you can listen to the whole thing there. So I want to give you that option in case you don't mind getting it little by little or you want the whole thing. It is available for you one way or the other. A couple more things before we get into the actual episode. I want to apologize for my audio on this episode. Uh, it's, um, well, Maj's audio is fine. His is fine. But uh, for whatever reason, I decided to use my AirPods instead of my professional microphone. So it sounds like I'm talking on a cell phone. It's still understandable. It's still legible. But it's not the quality that I've come to expect from myself. And it is all my fault. It's nothing to do with, with Brother Majid. It's all my fault. I should have taken the time to figure out how to get my good professional microphone available for this episode. But I dropped the ball on that one. But inshallah, hopefully you will still find it beneficial to you. And one last thing before we get into the episode. I promise this is the last thing. Last week, uh, I re-released I re an old episode about Freemasonry and Islam. And I did this because someone asked me about it. They wanted to know about it and they wanted to hear it. And chances are, if you've been following this podcast for a while, you most likely have heard about it already. So I want to remind everyone, if there are any older episodes that you can't find, many of them are available, pretty much all of them, are available for free at Islamic History Exclusive. If you go to islamichistoryexclusive.com, sign up for the free option. All it costs is an email address, and I do not spam. I haven't sent anyone emails in years. So I'm collecting the emails, but really I don't do anything with them. So you could put in a fake email or a bogus email, and I wouldn't even care. So... If you want to hear any older episodes or if there's something that you, you believe that was there that is not there now, go to islamichistoryexclusive.com for free and sign up for the free uh, uh, program. I forgot what it's called. <laughs> I did it myself. I forgot what it's called. But sign up for the free subscription. You can get it there, inshallah. So, all right, that's it for now. Hopefully, you enjoy part one of Islam, Slavery, and Africa. And I want to thank my brother from another mother, my brother in Islam, Brother Majid Hussein, for inviting me and collaborating together on this one. And inshallah, hopefully it will benefit us all. Amen. Okay, with that, let's get into the show. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Welcome to the Islamic Vice Podcast. I'm your host, Majid. Today, I'm joined by a very special guest, founder and host of the Islamic History Podcast, Brother Muttaki Ismail. Assalamu alaikum, bro, and it's a great pleasure to have you back on the show. Wa alaikum salam, Brother Majid. Alhamdulillah, thank you for having me, and I'm, I'm glad to be here also. We're going to talk some important stuff today, inshallah. Yeah, yeah, certainly, bro, certainly. I mean, for the audience, it's been a while since I released a new episode. Uh, the last one was in Ramadan. However, alhamdulillah, you know, we're, we're back, inshallah ta'ala, and back with a bang. And in fact, uh, myself and uh, Brother Mutaki, you know, we've been planning this podcast for a while now. 
And um, I hope we can do justice to the topic for today's podcast, which, as people will know, is on the issue of uh, slavery, uh, the Islamic viewpoint on slavery, um, also from a historical point of view as well. And as Brother Mutaki may agree, the topic of slavery, you know, it's in America, certainly it's as current today as it was a couple of centuries ago, um, especially for, you know, the Afro-Americans. It's something which uh, is linked directly to the plight of, of the black man in the, in the U.S. today. Um, and in recent years, you know, we've seen the calls for statues of historical figures uh, to be removed due to, uh, you know, their, their link to uh, slavery. And uh, as you know, Brother Mutaki, we spoke about this uh, previously. That it's been almost well, it's been over a year now since you know the killing of uh, the murder of George Floyd. Um, we know that tensions sort of rose once again. Um, and even though you know the Thirteenth Amendment uh, abolished slavery back in 1865, for many of the sort of black community, uh, they they're still not considered as as equals. And also another important point, I think, which will be key to this topic is the um, the link between Islam and slavery and the viewpoint that Islam has on slavery. Because what I'm seeing um, in recent times is that uh, there is uh, fingers pointing towards Islam and Muslims and Arabs in particular as being you know, part of a rampant slave trade, um, not just in Africa, but for also you know, white people, too. I mean, there's a reference that I came across. I'm not sure, Brother Mutaki, if you've uh, heard this, but even the term uh, slave um, has its origins um, from the word Slav. And, and it's, you know, from what's documented is that, you know, the Slavic people uh, were kind of enslaved by the Muslims um, during the ninth century. So there's a lot of finger pointing and maybe it's, it's a way of deflecting and trying to conceal the sort of crimes of... Uh, of Europeans or, you know, of those who enslaved people during the transatlantic slave trade. But uh, there's loads to discuss and uh, there's no one better, alhamdulillah, to have on the show other than Brother Mutaki to discuss this huge and controversial topic. So, bro, uh, I want to start off with the first question, um, mm-hmm. get the discussion going, right? And the first question really is, what is the Islamic viewpoint position on slavery? Because I feel that this is... Uh, many Muslims find this topic troublesome. Well, the Islamic viewpoint on slavery, as far as I understand it, is generally speaking, Islam does allow slavery. It has not prohibited slavery. Um, it's not, there's no verse in the Quran that prohibits slavery. But just because Islam allows something does not necessarily mean that we have to do it or that is actually necessarily good in all cases. So uh, divorce is an example of something that Islam allows, but generally speaking, divorce is not a good thing. But nonetheless, Islam, just like Christianity and Judaism and pretty much every other religion that I'm aware of, every other major world religion does permit slavery. However, in the Quran, there are no verses in the Quran that tell us how to acquire slaves. There's no verse in the Quran that says this group of people are slaves and this group of people are not. It doesn't say this person is to be enslaved or this group of people is to be enslaved. There's nothing in the Quran that says that. But there are multiple verses in the Quran that tell us to free slaves and reason to free slaves and why we should free slaves and how we, 
how we should free slaves and things like that. There are multiple verses like that. So, and that's going to play out hopefully later on in the conversation, inshallah. So in Islam, there's only one legitimate way to acquire slaves. One legitimate way. Doesn't mean people, Muslims have not violated this rule, but the only legitimate way to acquire slaves in Islam is through warfare. Not through kidnapping, not through debt, not for crimes, not for rebellion, none of those sort of things. Well, rebellion, I guess, would lead to war, so that could be. But generally speaking, the only way to acquire slaves would be through warfare. And even then, it would have to be against non-Muslims. Muslims cannot proactively enslave another Muslim who was not a slave before. Even a, even a Muslim rebel who rebelled against the government and was defeated couldn't be enslaved. Imprisoned, yes. Executed, yes. But not enslaved. So... That there's that, but the, the only legitimate way to acquire slaves in Islam is through is through warfare, where the captured POWs or even sometimes the captured populace, the conquered populace, could be enslaved. They could they could also, according to the tradition and the culture of the times, in many cases, when a city or nation was conquered by another nation, then the men were killed and the women and children were enslaved. That happened throughout the world, not just with Muslims. Where sometimes the entire population was wiped out, not just the not just the men. Yeah. So this was a common thing at that time. However, if the um, if for whatever reason the rulers of the government or the conquering army decides not to execute their defeated foes, they may choose to ransom them or they may choose to enslave them. This happened in, in many in many cases when um, Salahuddin Al-Ayyubi reconquered Jerusalem. Many of the uh, um, Latins or the Franks who were residing in Jerusalem, they were either ransomed away or those who could not be ransomed, many of them were actually sold into slavery. So this is a, this is a common thing throughout most of, the Muslim, most of the world, not just the Muslim world, most of the world before and after Islam. When um, Muslim cities were conquered by Christians, Muslims were enslaved and men were killed and women and children were enslaved. It happened throughout history on both sides. So that's the main, that's the basic view. Now, of course, while we say that a Muslim cannot be enslaved by another Muslim, and when we say that the only way to enslave a person legitimately in Islam is through warfare, while we say those are the rules, obviously over 1400 years and billions of people, those rules have been violated many, many times, but those were individuals who violated the rules or were operating on their own accord, not by the rules of Islam. Yeah, no, no, exactly. I mean, we, we see from, from the research that I was doing, we see in effect that there's actually like, it's like there's an obsession with emancipation within, if you look within the Quran and the Sunnah, um, in mm -hmm. regards to, first of all, what we see is that the, 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 the situation of slavery at the time, before Islam, there were many things which Islam actually kind of outlawed. That you know you couldn't acquire uh, slaves in this way, or or even the treatment of slaves. But what we one thing mm -hmm. we see consistently throughout the Quran and throughout the Sunnah is the call for emancipation. Whether it's to do with uh, it's even linked to righteousness in the sense like you know, Allah Subhanahu wa says in the Quran that you know if you are righteous, then you know you free slaves. Obviously, if you have a slave, you free a slave. You know, in even in Surah Balad where Allah Subhanahu wa says, and what would make you realized? What attempting the challenging path is Because here Allah talks about the two paths The path of righteousness And the path of unrighteousness 
And one of those things, if you're on the path of righteousness, is uh, to free a slave. So we see that at the same time, Islam removed um, many, many things to do with slavery. And, but at the same time, it promoted, it promoted heavily the freeing of slaves. Right, and that is um, part and parcel of Islam. And we'll, we'll, uh, as we get into the history of Islam and slavery, you'll see that um, one of the main reasons why um, this, there's no other way to put it, one of the main reasons there was a constant slave trade into the Muslim world was because of the demand for slaves because Muslims kept freeing their slaves. <laughs> Muslims kept, kept emancipating or manipulating their slaves uh, or the, the Arab world, or really it's the Arab slash Berber world in North Africa constantly freed their slaves, creating a demand for slaves, creating the need to go back and down across the Sahara and bring in more slaves. So we'll get into that more uh, as we talk about the history of it all. But yeah, freeing slaves is a big part of Islam. And even the whole terminology, and I know this is not what we want to get into, so I don't want to go too deep into it. The terminology of what actually makes a slave. So here in the United States and maybe in other countries, we have prison work gangs. These are prisoners who were, who have been convicted of a crime, and they are often um, not necessarily forced. This actually is considered a privilege in many cases. They have to do work for the state, fixing roads, digging ditches, breaking rocks, stuff like that. The whole word, the term, the chain game, comes from um, prisoners being chained up. Now, in modern time, they do get paid, but they get paid very, very little, below minimum wage, a couple of dollars an hour. And in the past, many of them weren't paid at all. So I'm talking about even after the slave, they weren't paid at all. They were just forced to do that. So is the concept of slavery, how much different is that than a person who falls into debt? And this is not this is not an Islamic concept, but a person who falls into debt and then is enslaved, or a person who is captured as a prisoner of war and then becomes a slave. You know, it's not much difference in that. So the whole terminology of slavery is um, very broad so we have to be very careful but i understand when most people think of slavery they do think of people who are classified as property of another group of people or another person per se and they're forced to do work for no pay in most cases or very very little pay in the best of cases so i understand we have the classical definition of slavery but that's a broad conversation i don't want to get too deep into that because slavery in the sonic world reigns very far um, I'm not going to talk about too much about Turkey or, or actually the Ottoman Empire, but the Janissaries who were slave warriors were considered slaves. However, they were very powerful. And the Mamluks, before they became rulers, they could also become very powerful. Uh, they were slaves, but they could become literally rulers and become more, more powerful than their former masters. Now, that didn't happen too often with Black slaves. I think that's what we're going to talk about more. But in sub-Saharan sub Africa, there were examples of slave warriors who rose to become rulers. Um, Askia Muhammad, who was the ruler of the Songhai Empire, there's believed that he started off as a slave warrior who rose to become a general and then eventually became a ruler. So it could have, it, it's a very, um, I just don't, I don't get too deep into it. I know it can, it can be complicated, but the term, our concept of slavery shouldn't just be molded by the traditional um, you know the traditional view we have of African or people of African descent working the cotton fields in Alabama and you know with an overseer on a horse with his whip ready to shoot or whip someone who moves too slow. 
that's the American way of doing things and very much the, the Caribbean way as well. But it, 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 was very, it was different in many ways than in the Muslim world. There's some similarities and we'll talk about that, but it's also different too. Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, just, just something that uh, you touched upon, um, this chain chain game or uh, you, you mentioned, uh, and I, I'm not sure if you've, if you've watched this documentary, it's called uh, The 13th. It's on Netflix yeah. and it's, it's, it's in regards to uh, the fact that, you know, the 13th Amendment itself um, had a loophole because we see that when slavery was abolished, we saw uh, in America the first prison boom and how this continued mm-hmm. and continued where now you have basically um, whole industries where their manufacturing is uh, products are produced within the slave, well, not slaves, sorry, within the prison system. And, and right. so some people are questioning now because what you see is over time, even the definition of slavery or, or you know, the, the, sort of the, the moral way of looking at it is, is always changing because maybe 30 years ago, they never saw people in prisons who are paid next to nothing as slaves, while now there are discussions within Western thinkers in regards to, you know, is this the same thing as slavery? So, okay, moving on, bro. So, obviously, we've spoken about the the Islamic viewpoint on on slavery and and how it came and and how it changed the situation uh, for how slaves are understood. But there's one point I do want to mention, and and this is important, I think, because you start off you start mm-hmm. off by saying that Islam doesn't prohibit slavery as such. Okay, it calls for the emancipation and something that's important for the listeners to kind of um, pick up on is that the idea of abolition of slavery started very later on. It started, you know, within the 17th century and Mm -hmm. before then, within every sort of civilization or within history, it was not there was, you know, there may be emancipation and so on. But there was never, there's never actually a call for the abolition of slavery as a as a system, and and this is really important because what we do now is when we look back at the and, and I think this is what you're alluding to the fact that you can't just look at slavery and then apply the same template everywhere because when we're looking at slavery we're generally thinking about like you said the cotton pickers in Alabama or you know in the South. Um, and we're comparing that now and the treatment to generally this is what slavery was and this is how slaves were treated. But throughout time, this isn't the case. So, bro, um, moving on in regards to the historical aspect then of, of we, we've understood that Islam itself, its viewpoint on slavery, which encourages the freeing of slaves, even to expiate sins and, and whatnot. So this is a really virtuous uh, action that one can do, very re- rewardable. Um, however, in regards to the uh, maybe the the practical implementation of of, of this mm-hmm. um, historically, how did it play out? Right. The uh, the first people to be, um, for lack of a better phrase, victims of Islamic slavery, Muslim slavery, maybe a better phrase, would probably have been the Persians. They were the Persians uh, after the. the um, the armies under Abu Bakr and then Omar, led by Khalid ibn Walid, and then um, Zad ibn Abi Waqas, I believe. Once the um, Sassanid Empire in Persia fell, fell, most of many of those inhabitants within that area became slaves of the conquering Arab armies, or conquering Muslim armies who were mostly primarily Arab. 
over time, um, as the time of the righteous caliphs, the, four, the first four righteous caliphs of Islam passed and moved on into the Umayyad period, the concept changed a little bit or the practice changed where you still had many, well, many of these Persians who were slaves, many of them converted to Islam, many of them were freed, many of them married Arabs. And once they became free, they became Mawali or Maula, meaning they were basically free slaves, they were Muslim, but now they, they were still tied to the ruling Arab family or the family that had enslaved them before. The Umayyads, uh, I don't, we're not gonna to get too deep into, but the Umayyads, um, they were not the righteous college, obviously. They were very um, wasteful in their spending of money and they needed a high tax revenue. And in Islam, we know that um, non-Muslims can be charged jizya or the poll tax. And that was also required for the Umayyad dynasty to maintain their standard of living. So the Umayyads controlled which maula or which, which people could become Muslim or not because they knew if these Persians, most of them were Persians, but also as they spread out into North Africa, you also have Berbers as well, and also cops from Egypt, and even Greeks and Romans from Turkey or what's now Anatolia in Syria, places like that. The Umayyads controlled or tried to limit how many of them could become Muslim because then they couldn't charge in Jizya any longer. And so the Umayyads kind of tried to control this. Those are the first people. Eventually that led to the Abbasid revolution and Umayyads overthrown, and Abbasids kind of changed a lot of that stuff around. And got, just, got a little just, bit better. This quick point, brother. Mm -hmm. I've heard of the Mawali tax. Uh, yeah. It's the fir first time I'm, I'm sort of hearing that the the you know those in authority uh, would have tried to restrict people from how how could they do this? I, I don't. Know. Yeah, it was um, particularly during the time of Hajjaj ibn Yusuf, the Maula or the the people who were free slaves. They were still connected to their Arab former Arab families or, or whoever ruled. They were still connected to them. But they, many of them, they had to get permission to accept to become Muslim, basically. And that permission wasn't always given because the government needed that tax revenue. Of course, that's un-Islamic, that is yeah. wrong. But the Umayyad, the Umayyad dynasty uh, prevent, prevented, until, with the exception of Omar ibn Abdul Aziz, he was the one who, for his two years of reign, he was the one who, overdid, who overturned that rule. But generally speaking, the Umayyads did not allow wholesale conversion to Islam. They, they controlled it, they limited it because they needed that tax revenue to support their lifestyle, to support their army, to keep control. They wouldn't allow all of these um, free slaves to just accept Islam. It had to be done with either their, in different cases, either the governor's permission or their uh, former master's permission, things like that. So it's, um, it was, it's a strange thing to hear. Portion is only about 100 years in our life, but there are other stories um, in fact, if you, I released a recent episode about the Sokoto Caliphate, which was in Africa. And these are, these are African, before the Sokoto Caliphate, before them, the empire or one of the kings who was Muslim before the Sokoto Caliphate came, he saw that the, um, the Muslims following the leader of this, I'm getting way back, way into the story, but Uthman Danfodia was a famous chef who eventually founded the Sokoto Caliphate. One of the reasons he was, a, he was a popular scholar during his period of time. He had a large following. His following was bringing in many people who were converting to Islam. To prevent his influence or to limit his influence, the Sultan at the time, who was a, a black African Muslim, said that no one could convert to Islam any longer. 
only and anybody who had converted and was some and for was from another religion had to go back to their former religion because he was trying to prevent the in Uthman and Folio's influence from coming too high. So this was an example of, and I just found this out last month when I was doing my research on, on the Soko Tokali thing. So these are examples of rulers of the past and Hajjaj ibn Yusuf did it. He prevented Muslims from uh, fully accepting Islam or fully, be, or fully becoming Muslim and getting all the benefits of being Muslim in order to keep that tax revenue coming in. This, in the um, time of uh, the example I mentioned Africa, that's for political reasons. But in the end, I guess it's all politics in the end. But going back to your original question, yeah, the Persians were, part, were perhaps the first people to um, come into Islam as slaves. From there, probably would be the Berbers next as the Muslims uh, pushed across North Africa. Uh, many of the Berbers accepted Islam and they, the Berbers were different. Uh, with conquering North Africa was much more difficult than the conquest of Persia. And so in many cases, the Arabs had to make um, had to make deals and negotiations with the Berbers in order for them to be in order for them to not fight them so much. So there was a lot of negotiate. If you become Muslim and just accept us, then and accept um, the rule of the, of the caliph, we won't fight you. And so many Berbers came into Assam just through wholesale conversion because they gave a lot more trouble to the Umayyad that they conquered North Africa. It wasn't always the case. And that's a very broad generalization because there are so many different groups of Berbers across North Africa, but many of the Berbers converted to Islam much quicker than other groups did. They accepted Islam much quicker. In fact, the Berbers were the, the Berbers, uh, North Africans were part of the main force pushing into Spain, what was now Spain and all. Um, and this is all during the, the, um, the Umayyad Caliphate, the first 50 years of the Umayyad Caliphate. So this is, um, so Berbers were very important with that. But as the Berbers became more Arabized, eventually, the, um, well, I'm not sure if you go now to, to swoop down to where the black people come in, <laughs> where we go down to that part now. But that's basically well, how... Well, one quick point, though, one quick point, though, just mm -hmm. to mention to, for, for the benefit of the listeners. Um, sure. This, these conquests were legitimate conquests. So the way these people were coming into this slavery, if that's what you want to call it, was legitimate uh, according to Islam. Yes, in the case of the Persians, the Persians were conquered people. They were conquered, and they there's the records from that time are very scarce. But if it follow the general the general pattern, in order to keep their life and their property, they would most likely have either become slaves and then perhaps quickly freed, but kept their kept some sort of allegiance or ties with some ruling Arab um, noble or sharif or something like that. Or they would have been, um, if they did fight, maybe they were part of the army that fought, they got defeated, and then they would have been a slave, perhaps over a couple of years, maybe they would have converted to Islam or done some great favor for whoever their master was, and then was freed or for whatever reason. But yeah, this, these early conquests, even into North Africa, uh, it was warfare. Uh, so, and this was if the Arabs, if they were defeated, they would have been enslaved also or killed. And it happened throughout history as well. So. Those who were defeated, if their choices were, I mean, either die or become slaves. Uh, you can't just, if you conquer an army and you defeat the army, you don't let a bunch of well-trained soldiers just go back home. Just, I mean, not back then at least. Now we have, you know, the, you know the, we have the Hague and the, and the United Nations and all these things. Or you can kind of mediate that stuff. But back then, you didn't have all, the, all those things. So 
You just can't let a group of trained soldiers go back home after you defeat them. All they're going to do is regroup and fight you again. So to prevent that from happening, unfortunately, the, the intelligent or the practical way would be to either kill them or enslave them, take away their power. And most people would opt for slavery over death in most yeah, cases. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, um, the, 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 exactly, exactly. Uh, but the, the point is, though, is that this was uh, based on within the Islamic tradition, and uh, you know, this this wasn't just raiding for the for the sake of slaves. This is something different. Oh yeah, yeah. This is actual warfare. This was not raiding for the sake of slaves. This was warfare. The Byzantine Empire uh, still controlled most of North Africa. The Muslims were in an active war against the Byzantine Empire. So fighting against them in North Africa, taking away property from land, territory from them in North Africa would have been a legitimate um, military objective to limit to limit their ability to harm the Muslim empire. So I'm not, of course, there may have been some, um, you know, some uh, selfish reasons for doing it. I'm sure there would have been local generals or, or governors who want to expand their power base and gain military. Uh, strength or gain wealth, but it wasn't done for the sake of slaves. Absolutely not. It was done for the active war with the Byzantines, and this was just a matter of expanding the territory and limiting limiting the power and ability of their enemy. But also, ju- just to, for uh, the, the benefit of the, uh, the the listeners again, that what we what we see is when uh, when the Muslims were going on these conquests, in a way, this was the way the uh, the the state would. Uh, Carry this was just like his foreign policy of carrying Islam to other nations because even before any warfare, there would have been talks, there would have been you know invitation to Islam. So the idea here wasn't enslavement; it was actually liberation of the people, and only those people who would have been enslaved were those who had resisted. And in fact, that would not be the uh, the populace, would it? That would really be people linked to right, right. The, the authorities because it's the authorities they fought; they never fought the people. Right, right. This is especially true during the time of the righteous colleagues. During the Umayyads, the Umayyads kind of went off and they sometimes broke a lot of rules and broke a lot of conventions. The Umayyads were far from perfect. But during the time of the righteous colleagues, particularly Abu Bakr to Omar and then a little bit on to Uthman, uh, yes, the, uh, generally speaking, the general, the Muslim general will go to the, the ruler or leader of that area, invite them to Islam, and almost always, believe it, almost always the people of that region would have been considered slaves of that non-Muslim king or ruler over there. He would have been considered slaves of, those, of that king. The king, in most cases, would refuse and resist. He would be defeated. And then him and his family, if, he, if they were left alive, their property and their lives would now be, go to the conquering Muslim army. And so this is how some of these uh, conquering Arabs obtained large tracts of land because they defeated the nobility and the ruling uh, families that ruled in Syria. So they would acquire all of this property, as well as the people who, who worked those property, if they were a feudal state. In many cases, they were feudal states. And But the, yeah, the Muslims rarely, rarely attacked general populations, especially during the times of the righteous colors. It was mostly just against the, the leadership. And once the leadership was broken or defeated, then the Muslims would usually hire locals to continue running the government on their behalf. Yeah. And they'll move on to the next, to, to the next place. And so, yeah, from, from a Muslim perspective, I can understand maybe the local people or the local government see them, could see them as invaders. But from the Muslim perspective, this was, for one thing, spreading Islam, but also a form of self-defense because all of these 
armies that were surrounding the, the very small and fractured, I would say weak, I would say fractured, very small and weak Muslim, Muslim um, Khilafat, particularly after Abu Bakr had just put down the, um, the wars of rebellion, wars of um, apostasy. The Muslim world was a little weak and fragile at the time. It would have been a, good, a great moment for the Romans or the Persians to swoop in and turn some of these former rebels against the Muslims. And so it was a war strategy. It is a, I see, I, I do kind of sometimes put things in practical means and in, in practical manner, but it would have been definitely an Islamic perspective, an Islamic strategy to help spread Islam, but also for practical matters to protect your borders, to expand your borders and weaken your enemies because the Romans and the Persians were looking to capitalize on the recently um, the recent, recently um, uh, defeated rebellion that Abu Bakr had just put down. That's why as soon as the, um, the, the Riddha Wars were ended, Abu Bakr immediately began to push on into what's now considered Iraq and then to the west into what is now considered Syria, really Jordan, more than Syria.